Hey, story fans. After a super awesome summer of storytelling in Chicago, Second Story is ready to begin our full season of 2014-2015 stories in style. After saying a sad goodbye to our beloved Webster's Wine Bar, Second Story is going itinerant, spending this season bringing amazing stories all around Chicago and planting our roots. We just opened this season this weekend, September 13th and 14th, at the Peckish Pig in Rogers Park to sold-out crowds and a vibrant new atmosphere. Stay tuned on our webpage and email blasts. We'll be announcing our October shows shortly. This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. A few years ago, one of our favorite storytellers left Chicago, moving to L.A. with her family. Lucky for us, she hasn't been able to fully let go of the Midwest yet, and Second Story Associate Artistic Director Kanisha Foster returned to Chicago this summer to work with amazing young artists at the Goodman Theater and to join Second Story on stage at City Winery for our annual Midsummer Bash. Safe to say, the distance only made our hearts grow fonder. I met with Kanisha at a Rogers Park patio to discuss the story you're about to hear. Start right this story. Okay, so it was about halfway through the year. It had been a really really difficult year and I was trying to write about that just for my own purposes and it's difficult when you're living through something and you're looking for perspective and and you read what you've written and it just sounds kind of sad <laughs> and so I was also thinking about always in life and in writing like how do you make it active what is it really about and this is about action this is about choices this, this is, about is Kanisha Foster Hi. <laughs> At midnight, December 12, 2013, Beyonce dropped a surprise album that rocked bodies all over the globe. Black women everywhere. We jumped on Facebook and Twitter, declaring allegiance to our sexuality, our art, our partners and children, if we had them, to our curvy ass bodies. And my curvy ass body was getting ready to go to bed. <laughs> when all of a sudden I saw hashtag Beyonce, hashtag life made, hashtag go black girl, it popped into my Twitter feed. And in real time, video chats of people listening to the album in tears. They couldn't continue their conversations. And even though I was still mad at Beyonce for not being funny in Austin Powers, because she was not, and some grudges are hard to let go of, but I was intrigued. So I bought her album for two reasons. Number one, social media shut down the world when it dropped. And number two, I just happened to have $78.99 worth of iTunes credit, so I thought, hey, why not? My body collapsed into my bright orange velvet chair. I clicked play with the intention of listening to just one song, and the first thing I heard was Harvey Keitel, Mr. White himself, asking, Miss Third Ward, your first question, what is your aspiration in life? And the silky dust of Beyonce's voice replied, my aspiration in life. To be happy. Okay, now, in 1985, when Beyonce was four years old and starting to perform in local talent shows, I was five years old, and my parents were heroin addicts. 
There are a lot of reasons why people self-medicate, and one that both of my, had, my parents had in common is that they are both manic depressive. So this meant that when I saw erratic joy enter my mom's eyes and this crippling sadness enter my dad's, that I had a few fleeting moments of sobriety to get their attention, and even then I knew there is a power in changing the subject. So what I would do is I would perform every sketch that I could remember from Saturday Night Live until they laughed so hard that all that they could think about was the next joke. It made me feel better, and it kept them from their extended escapes into the bathroom. So when Queen Bee said, to be happy, my husband Tony caught my eyes over the laptop screen, and I burst into tears. I stayed up all night listening, considering the idea that the world might be full of people who are just trying to be happy. And I was changed, y'all. At least I was starting to change. And if you don't believe me, I brought three of my Facebook posts during the time to share with you. Okay, so the first one happened pre-download. Let me sit this Wait, you guys, wait. Beyonce's new album has a parental advisory label. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> Number two, the next morning. Facebook, not saying it just to say it. Beyonce changed music and the industry last night and I'm feeling like everything that I love and I struggle with as a woman, an artist, a mother, a sexual being was thrown down, flipped, and reversed on that album. Mad respect. And also, side note, guys, anybody who has a partner or was just close to the right person at the right moment that night knows why I did not write that post till the next morning. Because, we can say this, right? We all had really amazing sex when that album came out. So i just like to take a second and say a sincere thank you to Beyonce. Thank you, Beyonce. <laughs> Number three. My post from two days later. Hashtag New Year's resolution. To learn the dances in every Beyonce video. This may also be my husband's Christmas present next year. Now this was not a throwaway statement on Facebook. It was, and it remains, a radical act of joy. Because some years come for you, and 2013 into 2014 was that for me. I lost my grandmother, two of my uncles, and my aunt in a two-month period. And then there was my dad. He had me on speakerphone, like always, and I could hear my stepmom, Karen, sniffling in the background. He spoke directly. You know, Karen doesn't like the way he said it, but I appreciated the doctor's bluntness. You just got to say these things. It's looking like cancer. How much is going to cost you to fly home? I'm going to put that money in your account. Now, it's important that you know that my dad and I do not have a relationship based on money We've never even exchanged one Christmas present. And the only birthday present he's given me was the year that I turned 10. He got sober. And while that present is so very precious, it is also complicated because there are strings attached to it. You and your sister saved me, my father was fond of saying. If it wasn't for the two of you, I wouldn't be here.
which I took to mean that I couldn't mess up because my dad's life depended on it. In a tiny Chicago apartment, I'm working on my first Beyonce dance lesson with an instructor. I did try to teach myself, but when you don't like to mess up, trying to keep up with Beyonce one-on-one can be humiliating, to say the least. (laughs) Kish is a friend from college, and she's a bubbly sister, naturally, and the fact that she's in love adds to her glow, knowing full good and well that I was not going to dance like Beyonce right away, or maybe ever. I am still struggling with how hard this is. Okay, okay. I'm feeling it. Kish nods as we rewind flawless, and I leap around trying to catch up. A dancer since she was five, she rolls her shoulders forward with Queen Bee's stank face and perfect control. And then she lets her booty lead her hips around in a twist. Now, the booty part I can do because, y'all, I got booty for days, right? But the shoulders, my shoulders are like blocks of cement. It's from years of pulling them in when I don't want to feel sad. Sitting in prison visitation rooms, waiting for my parents, explaining to other kids, yes, that was my dad who got arrested at the parent-teacher conference. And as the kid of an addict, living with the knowledge that you will never be as important as the next high. I tell Kish I need a glass of water. I need to give my shoulders a break. And when she comes back, I'm marking the second half of the dance. She sets the glass down next to a huge mirror. Have you noticed that you don't look at yourself when you dance? You just look at the floor? Shoot, she caught me. (laughs) Because I spend a lot of time throwing focus to other people. I was in the practice of disappearing growing up. So while my parents were the spectacle of every moment, I became very small. And some days, especially the days after they got sober, I really loved that about them. My dad in an Applebee's is like Samuel L. Jackson in a diner in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, The booth is his pulpit. I can remember him laying out some advice for me there when I was 17. And even then, I was focused on saving everybody else, especially people that really did not need to be saved at all. And I was telling my pop that one of my friends had shown up at my door blue and nearly unconscious after a night of drinking. I don't understand. I told him crying, since being a good girl was the greatest form of rebellion at my house. It's not your job to. You can't fix people, Kanisha. People are going to be who they are. It's your job to... Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. He waved the waitress over mid-sentence. Yeah, yeah, I want three chocolate malts. I didn't say milkshakes. I said malts. Bring me two now. One when the food comes. I'll let you know if I need another one after we eat. All right, now where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not your job, Kanisha. It's your job to create the life that you want to live. They'll either come around or they won't, but if they do, they're going to need to see that they didn't bring you down with them when they were at their darkest. Now, when the aliens come, I'm just glad you're going to be the one to show them around. 
This is the dad that dominates my memories. This is the same guy who bench pressed 450 pounds on his 54th birthday just to prove that he could. And so I never expected him to be the one that disappeared. But after a year of chemo trying to attack the cancer that was on his tongue and lymph nodes and climbing down his throat, a year of eating nothing but one protein shake a day if he could handle it, I could see the effects on his body. The collar of his usually triple X shirt hung like a hula hoop around his neck. His skin fell over his bones like sheets draped over furniture. And light still took over the exhaustion in his eyes when I hugged him feeling like I might crush him, and his smile revealing his teeth to be his most dominant feature because they were the only part of him that couldn't shrink. And even that quickly fell away as he sobbed into my shoulder. I never felt my father's bones press into me before. Against my cheek and under my hands, and he was sicker than I'd let myself believe. He was, he was delicate in a way that was hard to understand. During the next dance session, I hid my heartbreak pretty easily because you know what? I'm good at that. I pretended that the joy project was about the past and not the present. I felt the rhythm roll through my body with power, but the sequence of the steps seemed lost. I mean, how was I supposed to make space in my brain for order when my heart was so full of chaos? But Kish counted out the eights, and my body took over, and as my shoulders rocked forward and the cement softened, I realized this was not just a radical act of joy. This was a physical one. And my body was on lockdown, hiding heartbreak in every crevice, and Beyonce's body, I mean, you guys have seen it, that sister is thighs, hair, and freedom. The moves started to fall in order, and I was careful, trying to match Queen Bee's precision when Kish said, Great, you're doing the moves. Uh, now let's see a little bit more of you in it. Kish is good, man. She is so good. She catches everything. I would practice my dance after my morning phone calls to my dad. The deal I made with myself was that I could cry, but shortly after, I had to replace my tears with sweat. Calling him every day was not a part of the cancer. This was a part of our everyday routine since he had gotten sober 23 years earlier. If one of us didn't pick up, we would call the other one back because my dad is worried about my safety because I'm his kid, right? And I am worried about his safety for obvious reasons. It was three days before Mother's Day when he did not answer. It was two days before Mother's Day when I left the message, Hey, Dad, are you okay? You didn't call me back, and hopefully you're just tired, but um, could you call me? Because I'm worried. And it was the day before Mother's Day when my sister called me. I heard her breathing first. <laughs> Sheridan, are you okay? Her breathing again. No, no, I'm not. It's dad. I sat on the bed, 
and I waited for the pause, and I readied myself for my shoulders to take care of the sadness. Dad, Dad is using again. It was a white-hot anger that came instead. Sheridan described how my stepmom had found him, but I already knew what it looked like. I was five again, walking into the bathroom to find my dad sitting on the toilet lid in tidy whities a tan rubber cord wrapped around his bulging brown arm, his veins swollen, especially the one with the needle sticking out of it. His closed eyes, his breath drawing his chin up towards the ceiling, on the pink swirled counter beyond him, tin foil, a spoon, his orange plastic Bic lighter, and his open black duffel bag on the floor. And the way he couldn't see me there. The only difference was that then he had a body to give, protected by muscle and youth, but now all he had was skin and bones and two metal hips. And I will not tell you that I was surprised because you cannot be the child of an addict and be surprised, but I was lost. Who was I if not the little girl who saved her dad from himself? And I still wanted to save him. So I started our phone calls again. And every day I would say, I love you, Dad. What? What? What are you talking about? What happened? I love you, Dad. When I heard my stepmom on the speaker say, I don't know what to say. $10,000 of our savings is missing, so... I love you, Dad. Look. If you cared for me, you would call me more. This wouldn't have happened in the first place if you loved me. I love you, Dad. I don't need you. I got family, real family. I love you, Dad. I'm sorry, Needy. I never should have said those things to you. Not you. I love you, Dad. Look, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to get tested regularly, and the doctor said that there's a link that you can check with the results because I just want you to trust me again. I love you, Dad. And then he got high again. And I stopped. I stopped calling because I was hearing two voices, the one on the other end of the phone and the one from my memories. It's not your job, Kanisha. They need to see that they didn't take you down when they were at their darkest. Keep yourself safe. And all those years, he wasn't preparing me for the world or for the aliens. It was him. He was warning me about himself. I keep practicing the dance. 
practicing turning my tears into sweat, practicing because I don't want to have the kind of sadness that makes my children responsible for my laughter. So I, I roll my shoulders. And I twist my hips. And I roll my shoulders. And I twist my hips. And I'm looking at the floor again. And Kish, she looks up at me and she says, Kanisha, dance outside yourself. Kanisha turned into Beyonce. Kind of the most amazing thing. Powerful. That girl's hips move like no one I have ever seen. It was very, very intense. Almost as if she was dancing away Greek. Saw Kanisha just cutting loose and being free. Like you're just goddess among women and just watching her let go and just do it was incredible what project kept you stable through a stormy sea who pushed you to dance outside yourself where were you when beyonce dropped that was second story associate artistic director kanisha foster with her story titled dancing outside yourself this story was curated by Deb Lewis and features performance direction from Jessica Kadish and a live sound design from Nick Kawahara and the Harold Washington Trio. Here's Kanisha again to chat more about the story you just heard. You know, like every parent ideally wants their child to live a beautiful life, whether they're able to find those words and say them that to them or not. I really believe that deep down, if they were at their, their truest voice, they would want that for their children. I was struggling with the fact in the story, it talks about how my dad relapsed after 23 years, and that was, you know, I say, it's like, it, it isn't a surprise because you know that an addiction is an ongoing thing, it's not something you just are done with. But, man, it hit me hard, you know, so, and, and the reality of that, the reality of that that is still possible at any given moment in a real way, like it's really happening. And also, like, the upside of being a kid of an addict is, like, when you see your kids and your parents and they're, like, struggling with addiction and they still love you and you still have a roof over your head and you're still going to school and you're still able to do arts, it just, I was just like, well, if they can be addicts and do all that, then, like, I can do anything, right? Because I'm not going to be an addict, so... I'm going to have all this extra time on my hands. And so, so, like, so that's sort of how I live. I live like I have extra time. Mm -hmm. And people often are like, you're doing like 80 things. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, right, right. Because I'm not doing heroin, so it works well for me. You know? <laughs> L.A., you don't know how lucky you are. Come back to Chicago soon, Kanisha. We miss you. You can always reach me for comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at podcast at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. 
Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. We share our stories so you'll share yours. Now go and knock them down with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.